This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, we'll take you inside the room with Al Gore on election night 2000 as the closest presidential election in U.S. history played out in unprecedented polyoptics fashion. Our guests, Michael Feldman and Chip Smith of the Glover Park Group, take us on a trip in the way back machine. Then fast forward, the polyoptics of same-sex marriage will get polyoptics insight from Obama campaign press secretary Ben LeBolt. All that plus a revealing conversation with the man in charge of security for the upcoming NATO summit in Chicago, Arnett Hines, the former Secret Service agent on security, polyoptics, and how they coexist. But first, I'm joined, as always, by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, it's great to have you here. Adam, it is great to be with you again. I, we sort of took a bit of a hiatus last week. You recorded a new intro. We did a little talk from my trip out to Arizona. I am just back from Las Vegas, Nevada, on the red eye, was, uh, was at the uh, Skybridge Alternatives Conference in Las Vegas. Uh, watched uh, Carl Rove and Robert Gibbs go at it. Watched uh, former Vice President Al Gore give a, an amazing talk. Um, Sarah Palin speaking today. So I've got all sorts of thoughts about where the race is today, but we are joined uh, this week, Adam, by two people that we've wanted to have on from our very first episode 55 episodes ago. This is uh, an actually uh, a fantastic treat that we have uh, Mike Feldman and Chip Smith. I mean, we're talking about the leadership of the Glover Park Group. Uh, this was uh, a firm that was started after so many of these leaders uh, came out of the Clinton administration. And, uh, well, you work with them, so I'll let you give the proper introduction, but these are some of the foremost communications consultants and strategic uh, communications consultants that, uh, that live here in Washington, D.C. Well, Feldman and I go back to 1992. I'm a Boston kid, as you know. He's a Philadelphia kid. And we were both doing advance on Governor Clinton's uh, first presidential campaign. He was always like one stop ahead of me with his own team. I was I had my own team, and we were sort of always assigned to the same geographic area, but one city away. So then we'd meet up for drinks or dinner afterward and have a big celebration before going on to our next visit. But what was fascinating was that uh, Feldman... Uh, I came out of the blue from college and from sort of working in the private sector. Mike had a career up on Capitol Hill uh, coming out of Tufts University uh, working in the Senate. And, uh, and we both were assigned early on in the Clinton years to go out maybe the first couple of weeks to go out to Silicon Valley and sort of look around for an event that would heighten sort of the awareness of Bill Clinton and Al Gore as the new tech presidents. And we sort of banged on every door and we found Silicon Graphics and we did a great event together. And Feldman and I flew back to Washington together and I got a call to say, would you like to be one of the president's schedulers? And Feldman got a call to say, would you like to work for Vice President Gore? And there are trajectories split, and Feldman uh, turned out to be a eight-year uh, member of the staff of Vice President Gore and the traveling chief of staff on the Democratic nominee, Vice President Gore's plane. And he joins us along with Chip Smith, another founder of Clover Park Group, 
on polyoptics. And why don't we start, Mike and Chip, with where the story of Glover Park begins, really, which is election night, Nashville, November 2000. Welcome, Mike. Great to be here, guys. Thank you so much for having us. This is a treat. We've wanted to be here for a long time, and we're very excited. Uh, Long-time listeners, first-time callers, <laughs> et cetera. Um, okay, election night. Wow. Uh, this will drive me right into therapy. But, uh, but election night in 2000, I was, um, I was on the vice president's uh, traveling staff, as Josh mentioned. I was his traveling chief of staff. We were in Nashville. And we were watching the election returns from the Lowe's Vanderbilt Hotel, the ninth floor of the Lowe's Vanderbilt Hotel in Nashville. Um, and uh, as, as your listeners know well, and we all remember, uh, the first part of the evening looked great. Things were, uh, you know, states were coming in, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and then ultimately Florida. Um, and, um, and we were just sort of quietly preparing to... Uh, you know, to get ready to celebrate uh, when the evening got kind of hairy. Anyone call Al Gore Mr. President-elect? No. No, no, no. And, and in fact, I think, you know, everybody knew early on that day, just looking at the exit polls, that the race was going to be razor thin. And uh, I don't think anybody was counting, um, you know, getting ahead of themselves in terms of the vote. But, but, but the, you know, the early signs were good, and then, and then, you know, things began to tighten. And when they f put Florida back in the undecided column, uh, we, we uh, Bill Daly, who was the campaign chairman at the time, called a, in a meeting on the ninth floor in a in a little conference room we had set up there, and uh, there was just a handful of people in there: Vice President Gore, uh, Senator Lieberman, um, a couple of the senior uh, campaign staff, and um, there was a phone in the middle of the room that was connected to a boiler room operation, which was headed by a guy named Michael Hooley, who you may have had on the show, uh, but he's. Uh, uh, a very talented political operative, and he was counting the, the votes and looking very carefully at the vote in Florida. And uh, as the as the you know we began to, to game out the evening and how we would handle Florida, we had a we had a lead there, but the lead was narrowing. And then at a certain point, the vote moved uh, you know pretty aggressively against us, and um, county by county. And the networks at that point all called the race for. Uh, at the time, Governor Bush. I was actually in the room with Vice President Gore uh, and Senator Lieberman when the when the networks uh, called the race. The flag was waving. Pictures of uh, that was uh, CBS went went first with that call. Uh, well, actually, I believe Fox went first, yeah. um, but it was it was all very sequential at that point. They were on a hair trigger. They were looking at exit polling, and they were you, nobody wanted to be scooped. So within a, within a minute. All the major networks had called the race for Governor Bush. And and how much skepticism is there of that call to say it can't be right? How does the skepticism come up? You know what's what's interesting is um, it, it it all seemed very definitive. Yeah. You know when it you has have to be. when a you call. have the, correct and you have the the you know you have Dan Rather and you have Tom Brokaw and you have you know these icons of uh, of American journalism announcing George W. Bush the picture will be the next president of the United States, the flag's waving, it's all up there. It seems very final. And in fact, uh, at that point, um, the we, we, so, so we basically just hung up the phone with the boiler room, and uh, Vice President Gore went into the other room with uh, Bill Daly, and they um, eventually, Vice President Gore called Governor Bush and, and said that he would be going out to make a speech uh, to, to concede the election. Um, and um, they had a short conversation, and then he came back in, and we were told to get the motorcade ready, and we were heading to the War Memorial in Nashville. I am on the edge of my seat right now. 
because you've got to take us to the next step forward. I was sitting on a press riser in a rainstorm in Austin. Mm-hmm. I was working for the Chicago Tribune, uh, Tribune Broadcasting, and uh, we were seeing this play out. I mean, we were there on scene yep. waiting for the next step in this narrative, and yet, of course, it never came. So take us back inside the bubble. What was going on? When did it get testy? So we loaded up the we loaded and up the and make cars. a hero out of Dave Morehouse. We got to eat. <laughs> hey, David Morehouse will make an appearance in this uh, narrative. Yeah. So we loaded up the cars. David actually loaded up the cars. We got the family and everybody in the cars, and it was raining in in Nashville also, um, as you may remember. And um, you know, normally there's a protocol to how people to where they sit in the motorcade, and all of that kind of went out the door. As the traveling chief of staff, technically, I was supposed to be in a vehicle called the control car, which is very close to the limo. But I just got in any staff van with a couple of people. I remember Bill uh, Daly also got in a car that was farther back, and we just started heading to the war memorial. At some point, I had, at, by the way, as soon as the race had called, my campaign uh, cell phone and my white, I was still a White House staffer. Uh, I'd never left the White House staff. I was, I was an official uh, part of the package. My, my White House cell phone and my campaign cell phone were ringing off the hook, mostly for reporters who were looking for some color. And I just decided I didn't want to have to deal with it. So I turned off both cell phones my pager, campaign pager, was ringing off the hook. But at some point in the motorcade ride to the War Memorial, my White House pager went off. And with a call holding from the signal switchboard, which, as you guys know, is the military operation that runs communications for the White House, and it was a call holding with Michael Hooley, who was uh, the aforementioned uh, operative who was tracking the vote. And so I called into the switchboard. They connected me to Michael. And Michael told me... he. Uh, where are you guys? Uh, and, you know, he's watching this on Well, the room television. was in Washington at the time. Or uh, in Nashville. Na- in, Nashville. in Nashville, but yeah. in another location right, okay. at the campaign headquarters. He's watching this on television. I said, we're almost to the war memorial. He said, well, the, the, the vote is, it's 5,000 votes now. We're within, well within a margin of error. In Florida. And closing in Florida. And I'm looking at the Secretary of State's website in Florida. It's 5,000 and closing, and you can't let him go out. And um, I was just stunned by this, and we, I said, let, we, we need to, where's Bill? I can't, you know, I mean, I can't, can't get a hold of anybody. I said, well, Bill's in the motorcade. Let me see if I can connect him. And I conferenced us in. It was a early use of the conferencing feature on a cell phone. I got Bill on the phone. So it was just the three of us. And um, he, uh, we told him, and he said, all right, let's just go, let's get him to hold when we get there um, and, and have a conversation. So at this point, the motorcade's pulling up. We were pretty far back in the motorcade. I called David Morehouse, who Josh mentioned is, was the vice president's trip director. He was in the spare limo, so much closer to the vice president. And I just said, w- w- there's, been a, there's an issue with the vote. He can't go out. Whatever you do, just bring him to hold. And uh, and that was... He, and he's know, a big enough guy to block cr- a big vice president. Yeah, and, and there was a scrum getting out of the cars, an unusually large number of people with agents and staff and family. And I went straight to the hold to try to get on a phone with Michael to reestablish because this was in the basement of the War Memorial so there is actually no cell phone reception down there so at some point I lost the connection with him I raced to the hold to get on the fo- the one hardline phone that was dropped there for the vice president to reestablish with uh, Michael in the meantime David uh, raced up to the vice president and he said uh, sir I just talked to Mike we've got to go to hold uh, there's some issue and and Vice President Gore to his credit who had told Governor Bush that he was you know going to do this within a certain period of time and knew he was waiting said, look, I've got it, you know, I, I told the governor I'm going out. And David said, we really, really can't. We just have to go to hold for a second. You know, we'll all get together in there and explain. 
And the vice president kept proceeding to the stage, at which point David really just put himself in front of the vice president and said, we just need to go to hold. And when were the famous lines uttered, don't get huffy? Mm. So I'm on the phone with Hooley now on, in the hold, in the one phone that works in the hold. And Hooley says, we're down to 1,000 votes in closing. At that point, the vice president walked in. And I said to, to uh, Daly, and Gore was right there, we're within 1,000 votes. And I don't think Gore heard. And, and uh, Daly said, we're, he was kind of an anxious to get going. And Daly said, it's within 1,000 votes right now in Florida. And the vice president just said, really? <laughs> it's basically the First reaction. he knew of the closeness at that First point? First he knew of the closeness. And that word began to spread around the hold and this odd, you know, everybody, you know, the family, some, some of the kids were in tears and it was a very emotional time, obviously. It began to, to sort of spread around the room and then it became obvious we need to get a hold of Governor Bush. And uh, at that point, uh, you know, various efforts were made to try to track down uh, uh, Governor Bush and uh, eventually there was a number uh, that was produced, and Vice President Gore sat down and t- took the. We hung up with Michael, and he picked up the phone and called uh, Governor Bush and had the very well documented conversation with him. Um, and it was a hush. There were fifteen or twenty of us in our room. We were standing behind the Vice President when he made the call, and and they had an exchange. And it's again, it's been well documented. But at some point, the conversation basically broke down to. I'm told. Uh, governor Bush telling Vice President Gore that that uh, his brother, the governor, had uh, you know uh, had assured him that Florida was going in his direction, and the vice president had a rather uh, curt reply <laughs> reply to that, <laughs> something along the lines of your 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 little brother doesn't get to decide this or something like that, and uh, there was that exchange. You know, you don't have to get snippy. Has been has been reported, and they hung up the phone. Oh God! And there was a pause in the room. Nobody said a word. Everybody was pretty sure of. There was a lot of uncertainty, but everybody was sure of one thing: nothing like this had ever happened before in the history of presidential elections and politics. So it was a pretty, pretty, pretty loaded moment. And at that point, um, you know, the vice president turned around. He kind of he smiled a little bit. It was like I think Hooley said this before publicly. It was like the game was over, and then suddenly they put 20 seconds back up on the clock. Sort of European soccer. Correct. And uh, Chip, I understand that, uh, you know, at the, at the time, I think, were you in the private sector? Tell us about how uh, you worked with Mike and Carter Eskew and Joe Lockhart to pick up the pieces sure. and then form now the legendary Glover Park group. Sure. Well, the, at the time, actually, I was on Al Gore's campaign. I was the deputy campaign manager and the chief of staff of the campaign, so... I lived that uh, night uh, on the other side of the of town, over at the boiler room and in the main campaign headquarters. And so, everything that Mike was experiencing in the uh, in the motorcade, we were experiencing back at the headquarters. So, I think it was a uh, you know obviously a formative time. That's where I met Mike Feldman. It's where I got to know. I'd known Carter Eskew for the better part of a decade before that, and and had known of Joe uh, uh, through the years. But I, I say. There was certainly an inflection point, you know, on most at the end of most presidential campaigns on election night, you're thinking about what your next job is going to be. Is it going to be I've got to go find one back out in the private sector? I've got to find gainful employment after a crushing loss or where can I work in the administration and how relevant will I be? And, 
you know, we, we ended that night with no sense of either, uh, but the sense that, you know, we'd obviously, like in most presidential campaigns, formed a lot of in- incredibly tight bonds. I remember at the time when we, 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 went, we went into that recount behind by a few hundred votes, yeah. and it's hard to underestimate the impact of two things. One is the impact of that calling the election for President Bush earlier in, in the evening had a huge impact on the psyche of the American people. And then going into that recount effort behind, even by a few votes, um, you know, made put us in the position of being the spoilers, put us in the position of trying to undo something. And, and history changed dramatically as a result. But I think what one thing Adam and I are very interested in is, in addition to the effect on the psyche of the American voter, what's the effect on the psyche of two campaign stalwarts who were loyal and connected to the vice president for so long who might have expected to be part of an inaugural parade planning process for January 2001 and are instead at L'Oreal Plaza over burritos and coffee trying to figure out what the next step is. You are looking down the barrel at a new Washington. It is not yet a post 9-11 Washington, but it is a Washington that is going to be transformed after eight years of people like us sort of feeling like this city was ours and this city was no longer yours and you had to as chip said find something gainful to do how did this idea of a new kind of firm come into being over the course of the year um of the campaign uh carter and i had been working fairly closely day to day together because we were in nashville uh, Carter had left his job running the Washington office for Weber Shanwick. He'd really been out of politics. This was his uh, an opportunity to come back in, and obviously for an old friend. Um, uh, and I had left politics to be um, at what was then MCI Communications, which it was a tr- you know tremendous company before it found its way <laughs> astray. Um, and from the client side, where Carter was, uh, for the agency side, and from the client side where I was, I think we both observed that. Um, that there was a huge gap in the market uh, in Washington and, and generally in the communication space and that there were not really strong strategic communicators available as advisors. Uh, there'd been a lot of consolidation in the agency space in the 90s and there were, uh, you know, that the, the product wasn't very good. So we started talking about, you know, was it possible that an agency could be created? But it was the kind of talk you have when you, you know, when it's late at night and you're, you're tired of talking politics is we sort of, what else could we do? So the end of the campaign came, uh, and as we were all looking around, I think Carter really started to think very seriously that this was something that he wanted to do personally, and he felt like the combination of his collective experiences would, would you know, were, were the making of a new firm. And I, and I, the story that then connects is when I think he called up Michael, who was trying to think about what he wanted to do with his life, and was talking to all the kinds of people he'd met over the years, and Carter said to him, you know, Michael, you may not know what you're going to do next, but but I do, and um, I think very quickly the two of them came together. And I, you know, we give Carter enormous credit for seeing, you know, both what was possible in the market, but then saying, okay, if you're going to be successful, what combination of people would really make that possible? And and very quickly, Michael and 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 Carter remembered uh, Joe, who they'd been colleagues with and uh, and good friends with, and uh, shortly after. Uh, called me back up and, and, and instantly we all, all of a sudden we had a band uh, and uh, you know it's, sometimes it's funny it's the diverse group of perspectives that makes a band work and, uh, and, and we seem to have hit it at exactly the right moment in time and frankly I think it, you know and Mike and I talk about this a lot it may have been the fact that Democrats were so out of power 
and so out of favor that for a period of time, uh, this little agency that was getting off the ground was the only really interesting thing happening for a few right. Democrats. And, uh, you know, it was it was something to celebrate. We were having a lot of fun early on, and a lot of Democrats weren't. I want to take a turn. We don't have a tremendous amount of time left here on Polyoptics, and I think we would be remiss, Josh, if we didn't get uh, Mike Feldman and Chip Smith to weigh in on the optics of what has transpired this week in the presidential campaign, namely um, the outing of the president's uh, pro-gay marriage policy by his vice president. Yeah, and Mike and Chip, I I welcome your thoughts. I found this fascinating uh, because, you know, new media seemed to occupy so many scoops recently, and you'd wondered how, in a post-Tim Russert world, how David Gregory was going to keep Meet the Press relevant, and it doesn't take more than a good booking of the vice president to make that happen, does it? Well, I mean, a couple things that I think are interesting. One is politically, two is optically. And then three is, to your point, how the political media industrial complex moves at lightning speed. So, you know, look, the issue, I, 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 you know, I personally, I feel like this is the civil rights issue of our time. And, and it's become clearer and clearer that, you know, that, that, that the artifice that we're putting up around this issue, it, you know, we'll look back in, t- in my view in 20 or 25 years and wonder what conversation were we really having about that. And I think I think the president's a thoughtful person. I think he had come to that conclusion, too. But 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 that leads to the second point, the politics of it, which are undeniable. And I think, um, you know, that, that this was something that a decision apparently by all reports that he had come to was looking for a time and a place to make that public and uh, was certainly going to do so, uh, you know, in the next several weeks and certainly before the conventions. Um, but, you know, in doing that, and he, he knew he was going to be taking a political risk. You know, and, I, I just wanted to jump in because I, I want to know, Josh, if you agree with this statement, too, that uh, the narrative for this week, save Biden's comments on Meet the Press and then the incredibly agile uh, movement of the Obama campaign uh, over the course of the week, uh, would have been this anti-incumbency. I mean, we had uh, incumbents going down all over the place, uh, and uh, we're, we're, we're losing uh, long-serving senators like Luger, Snow, others. But this was an presidents opera- of France and Greece. Yeah. I mean, well, you know- that, that's exactly right. So all of a sudden, regardless of the the ideology here, to my mind, the optics were were played in such a way that. They cut a campaign ad. They did an interview with ABC News. They found their venue. They found everything that they needed, and they executed on it with such speed. It was staggering. I, d- I don't think it's how they planned it, obviously. But I do think you're right that, look, the situation they were in was untenable. The question had been posed. The, the president was now then in the position of either hemming and hawing and continue to quote unquote evolve over a period of time, which in my view would have just undermined one of the central, you know, pillars of his candidacy <laughs> and and then frankly undermined his ability to attack his opponent as being someone who's on all sides of an issue and has no core. So to to hold on to that position artificially over a period of time would have just done damage and unnecessarily so. And I think the White House decided at that point, let's to your let's just make it happen. And let's get him out there and make this clear. And and Chip, to practical process too, um, it's it's not uh, it's very well known through uh, several books about uh, uh, the early Obama campaign and presidency that 
Barack Obama was able to rely on a lot of financing of the 2008 campaign through support from New York and Wall Street, mm -hmm. uh, support that may be a little more uh, tepid than it was four mm -hmm. years ago, and yet this week he goes out to L.A., raises $15 million dollars, uh, at George Clooney's house at a fundraiser, certainly where uh, his embrace of gay marriage was warmly received. Is this also sort of a practical, tactical shift uh, to replace uh, some lost money with some new money? I, th I don't know whether it's a straight shift, but I'd say I, I think the president has to recognize where his base is and where his fundraising base is. And certainly uh, uh, the gay community, where this issue has been so fundamental, is, is, a, is an important core. There'll be a lot of conversation about President, about Vice President Biden's comment, uh, but I think the story is ultimately something that's much more historic, that where the where the president goes out and makes a statement. I think well, you know, short, short, short term, by the way, I do think this helps to, to some extent burnish the conservative credentials of Governor Romney in a way that he 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 needs, because um, the contrast on this issue to certain segments of the Republican electorate is you know undeniable. Uh, but you know, I think and I think that is the risk. On the other hand, you know, to make again to make a call like this is 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 risky, by definition. Uh, but also, I think the president views this as not only a position of principle, but one that he can get behind and campaign behind and be very proud of going into the general, and that will help, uh, you know, energize not just his base, but where this election is going to be fought in the fall among persuadable voters who are who are independent-minded and who want to see somebody who has a core conviction and is willing to get behind it, stand behind it, execute on it. Mike Feldman, Jeff Smith from the Clover Park Group, thank you for joining us on Polyoptics. Thank you guys very much. Thanks. Adam, we're joined by a veteran of a much more decisive victory, 2008. Ben LeBolt, currently the press secretary of Obama 2012, was a uh, was on the campaign in 2008 when then-Senator Obama uh, 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 beat John McCain. Ben left the White House after working for several years in, in the communications and press shop, w went back to his native Chicago, was communications director for uh, the chief of staff uh, of the White House, Rahm Emanuel, who returned to Chicago to run for uh, mayor of Chicago. That victory notched in his, uh, in his revolver. Ben has now returned to Obama 2012. Welcome to Polyoptics, Ben LeBolt. Curious about your perspective on the difference of the sort of uh, zeitgeist of a 2008 upstart campaign versus an incumbent campaign that you're helping to run out of Chicago. You know, I, I think there are differences, uh, but uh, if anything, uh, what we're doing in 2012 is taking the, the lessons we learned about what worked best uh, in 2008 and applying them to this race. And I think one thing you learn on uh, presidential campaigns, you would assume that, uh, you know, it's sort of the, the national news and the, the national debate that, that matters most uh, each day. But uh, how the president's always run his campaigns and how we've always run these campaigns are from the ground up uh, with our ear to the ground uh, on what's happening in states, uh, the issues that are resonating there uh, oftentimes don't match up with the cable chatter or sort of congressional back and forth that uh, you're focused on uh, each day. It's a lot more uh, kitchen table issues that people are focused on uh, in the states. And, uh, you know, we opened doors a year ago to really build up our state operations and make sure that our supporters were talking to their networks in states. Uh, and now we have that infrastructure in place on the ground. And, uh, and you know, every day we're focused on what's in the news in Iowa and Florida and North Carolina and Nevada. What is it like to be running uh, uh, for re-election? Uh, uh, you know, what's, what's the trappings of incumbency? How do, how do you deal with all of that now? 
Well, you know, the fact is that we were losing 750,000 jobs a month when the president came into office, uh, and uh, we've now created uh, more than 4.2 million private sector jobs, and the auto industry was on the brink. GM's the number one automaker in the world again, and manufacturing was in decline and and, uh, is now back. We've created more than 400,000 manufacturing jobs. Uh, But the fact is we need to do more than recover from the recession. We need to restore economic security. Right, but let's uh, talk about the campaign, though. I mean, I I understand. I am talking about the campaign. Those are the issues that matter to voters and states. Right, but, uh, you know, since we're here on polyoptics, I'm I'm trying to get a sense of, you know, as you you work on the campaign, the, the the idea of, of having a president now in the White House um, and and all of the things that the president is doing to be the president of the United States, not just a campaign uh, for president, what kind of challenges is that representing? How is it different from what you, you, you experienced in the first go-around on the campaign? Well, you know, the uh, uh, you have uh, much less time uh, with uh, uh, on the president's schedule. Uh, so he's focused on doing the job the American people elected him to do every day, uh, which is, uh, you know, creating jobs and keeping the country safe. Ben, as uh, the former White House director of production in the Clinton years, you know, it was one of the things that we realized early on, which was the ability to send a message visually when the president goes out and speaks. So if it, if it was our 1996 theme, a bridge to the 21st century, uh, protecting America's values, meeting America's challenges, uh, that was sort of the uh, a very different approach than 1992, which was coming at the end of the, the Bush and Reagan years and sort of the, the age of the blue drape and flags and bunting. Uh, at these rallies in uh, Ohio and Virginia that you unveiled this week uh, came also the 2012 uh, slogan forward. Can you talk to us about the various options and ideas that were tossed around in Chicago about how to label this campaign and how to market it and brand it the way you did in 2008? Uh well, uh, you certainly saw the, the slogan uh, forward being used at the events uh, this weekend and in the advertising that's on the air right now. The center of that is, is uh, the story that I just pointed to, the fact that the economy was on the brink, that we've made all this progress, and we can't go back to the same economic policies that caused uh, the economic crisis uh, in the first place. And I think that's really on a continuum from the sorts of themes that you've been hearing from the president for the last year, whether it was uh, his speech uh, in uh, in Kansas, where Teddy Roosevelt gave a similar speech a hundred years ago, uh, or in the State of the Union, the vision of uh, the economy built to last, where hard work and responsibility are rewarded, and everybody from Main Street to Wall Street plays by uh, the same set of rules. Uh, those are the themes that are really at the at the but, centerpiece of this election. But is Joel Benenson out there working hard to figure out between forward and advance and more hope and looking at various options? To what degree is is did that sort of appear as a uh, a brainstorm in the middle of of uh, Jim Messina's morning shower versus a thoughtful approach toward disciplined marketing? Uh. Well, I, I, I'm not going to uh, get into the uh, the details uh, of the process of, uh, of who developed it and, and how, but uh, it certainly uh, certainly reflects the themes that uh, we can't go back to those same policies that have tried before and, and failed and need to continue on the path we're on. Ben, I have to ask you, uh, uh, I, I kind of had thought that, well, maybe the, the, the Sunday morning shows were declining in relevance a bit uh, because, you know, people live such distracted lives in their weekends. They don't want to be couch potatoes and watching Face the Nation and, and, and uh, 
uh, this week and meet the press. And, and then there comes uh, Vice President Biden on Meet the Press and triggers sort of a, a bunch of mechanics this week about uh, uh, the president uh, speaking uh, on um with ABC about his his now changed view on uh, on gay marriage, and Adam and I were applauding uh, with our earlier guests Mike Feldman and Chip Smith about how effectively the campaign uh, sort of took the offensive and got out there. But what was happening for you and other communicators around Sunday when you, sort of your timing got a little bit upended? Well, the, the fact is the uh, the president uh, after going through a long. Uh, thought process on this and consulting his wife and and thinking uh, as a Christian, you know, ultimately decided when he was in New York State uh, around the time of the vote to legalize same-sex marriage that uh, if he were a state legislator, he would have uh, supported it, voted to support it. And uh, he was always going to uh, make this announcement uh, at some point in advance of the convention uh, this year uh, when when the timing seemed right. But obviously, uh, the Meet the Press interview uh, made this a subject of national conversation uh, for days, uh, and uh, and he was asked in a in a forum that allowed him to uh, really explain his views uh, in uh, in depth, uh, and uh, and it, it made sense to do it since uh, since it was part of the national conversation, really driving the news uh, all week. It's tough, I, I I suppose, as the the press secretary for the campaign to really delve in the way that I think we're trying to probe because for the president, it would appear, and for the White House, this is both a personal issue, a statement of um, administration policy, obviously, but then there's the thought about the uh, the politics and the politicization of the entire issue. And so you represent the campaign, and I think what Josh was getting at in the question was, you know, if, if this wasn't a campaign issue for you where you were the ones who were going to plan the event in the place where the president would make it but rather the white house how did you all react as a campaign because your uh circumstances clearly changed and you have a set a, a completely separate set of uh of goals than the white house does on this and and you turned out an ad very quickly so as communicators were you were you shocked? Did somebody wake you up and tell you this had happened on Sunday morning? Were you watching? Did you guys realize you had to enter the conversation as the campaign and speak with the White House in a, from from a different perspective? Uh, no, I don't think so at all. I mean, this is an organization where everybody is uh, is kept in the loop, uh, and uh, the fact is that this was a personal decision of the president. Uh, it's one of those things where the news is big enough that everybody in the country is going to hear about it. Uh, and the only thing that happened from this end was uh, an email uh, from the president explaining his decision to the millions of supporters who've signed up to receive updates uh, from uh, from Obama for America. Well, Ben, uh, thanks so much for sparing a few moments with us on Polyoptics today. You're gracious to come on. Hope we can have other you and, and other members of the campaign to come on and chat with us from time to time. I got to say, uh, knowing your your background from Middlebury College, uh, coming into uh, the Obama 2008 campaign, having that rare opportunity to work in the White House, to travel with the president across the country and overseas, and then to actually be able to take that diversion, work for Rom uh, as he's uh, beginning the next phase of his career uh, and and uh, 
bringing a new day on the city of Chicago, your hometown, and now being able to uh, uh, help with the reelection effort, probably the, the last run for office Barack Obama will have, rare opportunity, a, a great service, uh, and thank you for what you, you're doing, uh, and best of luck in the next five months. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me on. Talk soon. Adam, was great for Ben LeBolt, uh, the press secretary of the Obama 2012 campaign, to come on with us on Polyoptics. You know, you and I often try and sort of get behind the curtain, talk about the process and the development of ideas. I totally respect where a guy like Ben LeBolt is coming from. I need to stay totally focused on the campaign's message. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this is the mission of Polyoptics to engage at every level in a lot of the things that we do. As we heard earlier in the show, talking with Mike Feldman and Chip Smith, getting really behind the curtain uh, as you watch it unfold in real time, being able to have Ben LeBolt. And I know that we'll have folks from the Romney campaign on this broadcast going forward as well is a real treat. But let's take a second and turn the page. We, you and I have spent a lot of time thinking about something that's le- sort of left out of the news right now, which is this Secret Service scandal that came up out of Cartagena. And as we think back about it, uh, it's almost really more important to focus it through the lens of what's going to happen going forward. And someone that you've worked with, a real leader in this space, is our next guest. That's right, Adam. Uh, Arnett Heinz, uh, the uh, chairman and founder of, of the security firm Hillard Heinz in Chicago, has been retained by the city of Chicago to help plan the NATO summit, which is going to start uh, next week on May 20th. And, you know, e- even as you sort of compartmentalize the issues of Cartagena and what the director of the Secret Service, Mark Sullivan, is doing to get to the bottom of that, the work of the Secret Service goes on and never more than a national security special event when the leaders of 60 plus countries and their delegations come on a a city that, well, has an enormous police department and and great infrastructure, doesn't usually see this kind of thing every day. Chicago is a big city with a a lot of assets to be able to host something like this hotel room, but it is definitely a little out of the norm. And so what do you do when you host a big event like this? You form a host committee. You raise money uh, to be able to make all the arrangements, to provide security, to provide the backdrops, to do all the logistical planning. And you also employ people who are expert at helping work through some of these logistics. One of those, Arnett Heinz, chief executive officer and co-founder of the uh, global security firm Hillard Heinz, a person that I worked with back in the 90s when he was in the Presidential Protection Division of the United States Secret Service. And he joins us today for a few minutes to talk about preparations going to transform the city of Chicago into the setting for the next NATO summit next week. Arnett, welcome to Polyoptics. Good morning, Josh. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell us your role and how you were brought in by Mayor Emanuel and what what the firm is doing and and the the work that you're providing to help the people of Chicago understand that, hey, business will happen pretty much as usual, even though there there are these extraordinary circumstances. Thanks, Josh. You know, it's it's very interesting. When this... um when this summit uh, was announced um, about a year ago that it was coming to Chicago, it, it was received with uh, great enthusiasm by the community. And then we started to see um, various uh, media um, starting to focus in on past events that had been around the country. Um, you know, going to the WTO meeting in Seattle um, about 13 years ago, as well as um, the Pittsburgh um, uh, G20 and uh, the the summits in Toronto. And before you knew it, we started seeing, you know, scenes of decades ago where there was certainly confusion in the streets and demonstrations that uh, had gotten out of hand. And and frankly, some police departments were not prepared for for those events. And 
that started gaining um, um, attention in our community. And I think, rightfully so, there were, you know, business leaders and residents started, you know, wondering what, you know, how, how is Chicago going to be different? And as that dialogue continued on, um, the the NATO host committee reached out to us and we began a conversation and um, they they recognized that there was a definite vacuum that needed to be filled to help business leaders um, prepare. And the, the point I think the host committee quickly realized was that not every business had the same needs, and but they all needed um, experienced counsel and advisors that would make sure they they addressed all of the issues that were important to them. So ultimately, that's that's the uh, that's the uh, spirit in which uh, they reached out to us and asked us to help with that uh, uh, initiative. I would tell you that in our role as their advisors, we've we conducted over 15 community um, meetings for business leaders, uh, addressed well over 4,000 participants, and um, one of the key themes. Um, that we're also supporting um, the, the summit with is we've established really a first-time-ever business communication center that um, um, we've got over 1,200 businesses um, registered and signed up with us, and, and we've been communicating with them. Even as we speak right now, we're, 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 we're communicating issues. We, we sent uh, really some significant messages out yesterday advising them of information that we knew that we had learned on on demonstration activity just to keep everybody informed so arnett has this has this event been uh termed by secretary napolitano as a national security special event yes it um yes it has most definitely and josh as you will remember back during president clinton's tenure um uh he he drove an initiative to uh establish that presidential directive which created the framework for a national special security event can you can you share with our listeners really what that means and what makes it different between a, a, a Queen Elizabeth's visit to Washington, which is, can basically be handled by the PPD and the field office and Metropolitan PD versus 68 heads of delegations coming to a city not used to this kind of thing? It's the kind of thing that you also declare for Super Bowl, right? Exactly. So, um, the, so just a little history here. Um, I, I think what President Clinton realized in, in the mid-'90s was that the federal government um, needed some coordination when it came to, you know, bringing all of the vast resources it has to support to support uh, communities and state governments. So, uh, as a result of that, uh, he, he he issued the directive which established this uh, NSSE framework. And, and essentially, there's three primary components to it. The first is the operational security planning. Um, and that responsibility rests uh, clearly with the U.S. Secret Service, and it's their it's their responsibility to plan, design, and implement an operational security plan for the entire event. Um, now they don't do this alone; they do this in close collaboration um, with their state and local partners. In the particular case of the NATO summit here, the Chicago Police Department has been just a fabulous partner to. To, to bring their resources. You know, they're the nation's second largest police department in the country, so they're bringing really significant resources to the, to the table as well, but, and they're coordinating this event together. Now, the second leg of that um, framework r- involves, you know, disaster or, or crisis management and, and, and preparedness, and that responsibility rests clearly with the FBI to have a crisis management and response plan together to deal with any significant threats, 
or incidents that impact the the overall event. And the third component um, is the all of the, the preparation that um, uh, FEMA would bring to bear to support in the event um, there were there were uh, catastrophic uh, consequences that required that t- sort of support. So those are the three legs of an NSSE, and uh, and and that that framework is employed here. It's operating very successfully, and uh, um, so we'll, we'll we're, we're all prepared and excited about it. Arnett, I was reading uh, maybe when the summit was first announced. It was interesting because it looked like a twofer. Uh, in successive weeks, you were going to get uh, a NATO summit, and then it was also the U.S.'s turn to host the G8, in which that felt sort of me like hosting the Olympics and the Special Olympics. Um, and yet then there was a decision a while back to sort of bring the G8 back to Camp David, a very secure location in the Catoctin Mountains of Maryland, where eight leaders, and I guess now they've extended the invitation to some African leaders, could meet in almost total secrecy, privacy, and, and all certainly heightened security. Any insights from, this, from the city of Chicago, the mayor's office, the business community, which said, please, can you just do it one summit? We, we really don't have the appetite or the ability to secure the city or, or get us out of our routines for, for the length of two summits? You know, I, I I don't have any specific information on that. What I can tell you, Josh, is um, you know the president made that announcement about the change following his his meeting with um, um, uh, Israel, um, uh, Prime Minister, and and I I believe um, the president has made um, a public statement about that change, in, indicating that um, it was his desire to to host this in a in a in a in a location which would provide intimate discussions and, the, and, and, and take away some of the logistics uh, um, complications that can arise of trying to host a G8 meeting in, a, in an urban environment. And, I, I, you know, you and I have spent many weekends at Camp David, and we know, you know, it's, it's very secure, very secluded. You don't have transportation or logistics issues because all of the heads of states will be residing in private cabins that are within walking distance to the president's cabin. And I just hope the there's running water. You know, I'm concerned about running water and plumbing up there in some of those cabins that don't get a lot of use, but that's okay. It's not like the high, the Grand Hyatt in Chicago. Yeah, I can promise you that th- there'll be running water uh, flowing. Uh, that that we, that's I'm, I'm guarantee you the military is taking care of that. So uh, that uh, that that'll be working well this weekend. Arnett, uh, I want to bring in our co-host, uh, Adam Belmar, the co-host of, of Polyoptics, who also joins us from Washington. Um, a- Adam, uh, your perspective on doing some of these summits for President Bush and uh, what, it would be li- what it is like to sort of bring a, a U.S. city uh, that doesn't usually see these summits uh, into the fore. I am always in awe of, of what the service and their local and federal partners are able to do, which is why I was so excited that we could have you on the show today, uh, Mr. Heinz. But I, I will tell you this, uh, in 2008, we did uh, a, a G20, uh, essentially the, the largest ad hoc world leader summit in generations here in Washington surrounding the uh, financial crisis. And we did it within uh, a month of its uh, conception. It was a full execution. Now, it was an enormous lift for the folks at the State Department and for, for us folks inside the White House. 
and yet we could hardly understand how the logistics from a security perspective could be brought forward, but it happened in Washington, D.C. Arnett, you and I worked together uh, during some years of the Clinton White House, um, and uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, we, uh, we have, we've had Dan Emmett on the show a couple times, and what's, what is fascinating is the sort of range of different career paths that uh, Secret Service agents who uh, have worked for 10, 15, 20 years uh, in the federal government take when they leave uh, when they leave the government. And uh, Dan went to the CIA, and now he's in private security consulting. You were assigned to be the, the SAC in Chicago, and you've really embraced that city and created uh, this private firm, Hillard Heinz. Can you talk to us sort of about the different paths that agents take as they get out and particularly what drove you to take your path? You know, it's, it's really interesting. The, the, I would tell you that, um, you know, shortly after I left the president's uh, detail, Josh, that, which was in 95, I had various assignments in, in Washington, D.C., and, and uh, ended up in our public affairs office. Um, and I remember going to uh, Denver, um, um, and, and Denver was hosting, uh, at the time it was the G7, and um, we were we were preparing for that event. And it dawned on me that time that uh, my first ideas and thoughts about establishing a security firm came to bear mind. And then obviously September 11th put a whole new focus. And in fact, um, you know, within a couple of weeks after, after that tragic event our country went through, um, I started putting together my thoughts and ideas um, around a, a, a very differentiated business um, that would provide not only protective security uh, functions, strategic security services, but in, uh, really strategic investigative support as well. And, um, you know, originally my, my plan was to create, establish that with all of my colleagues you know, that had a, a similar interest from the Secret Service. But when I moved here to Chicago in, in 1999, I met a fabulous uh, um, career law enforcement professional by the name of Terry Hillard. And Terry was the superintendent of police at that time. And, and I would tell you that we established a friendship and, and a professional relationship. Um, and he brought just a tremendous um, perspective, a, a, a different mindset, um, embraced a whole variety of issues on diversity of cultural, uh, culture, ethnicity, and, and, and work perspective. And so ultimately, Terry and I I retired in 2003. He retired a few months uh, after I did, and, and we established our firm in 2004. And, um, and at the time, it was, you know, two retired law enforcement professionals. But from that time, we brought the firm up now to close to a professional services firm of 50 uh, employees. We have national operations. We do work on for, for certain of our clients on a global perspective as needed. Uh, and we're doing some really tremendous uh, support to mostly Fortune 500. And, and even to this day, we're supporting our, our, our nation's government uh, on, on some critical issues as well. So a final question for you as we wrap up here on Polyoptics, Series 6 and 124, uh, talking with Arnett Heinz. Uh, what is your take, if you wouldn't mind sharing a, a personal view, on what you know today, not of the original uh, story that came out, but uh, around the so-called Secret Service scandal in Cartagena? We're hearing that uh, the service is, at least according to Senator John McCain this week, doing a much better job in briefings that he has had on the level and granularity of that investigation. You know, I, I will. You know, the first, um, my, my first impressions when I heard this this story as it was released over that weekend, which is now, I think, three weeks ago today, um, that, that it's been um, 
that the story uh, first revealed itself, uh, it w- was the perspective of, of quite a, a lot of disappointment. Um, and, and, and I know the leadership that's back at the service. Uh, Director Mark Sullivan and I um, actually uh, were together. Josh, you will remember we were on the presidency together. And, right. and, 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 and Mark is um, a totally, totally dedicated um, Secret Service um, employee. He, 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 he was raised and, and brought up through the agency. We learned from, from leaders that passed on generation after generations of sound principles about, you know, the duties that you, you perform for the, for the nation. And he works very hard with his leadership team to make sure those, those, those same traditions and cultures are passed down. And, you know, the, the, the service, I think, the, to remember the, the very first tenant, they're, they're humans, and, and, and in every organization, you're going to have mistakes and behavior that pop up from time to time. But this cannot be tolerated. It's not condoned. And I would tell you that they, uh, Director Sullivan and his leadership team really showed some decisive and quick action when this um, uh, incident was first, um, actually before it became public, because as soon as it came to the direction of uh, Director Sullivan, his first orders were to get every individual that even remotely was associated with this allegation back in D.C. immediately. So at least 12 hours before the story became public, these agents were on a plane headed back to Washington, where that weekend they were interviewed uh, by, by representatives of the um, Office of Inspection and, and, you know, trying to get to the bottom of the matter. So uh, Director Sullivan made quick, decisive action. I, I, I don't know the number of agents that have been terminated to date, but I know there's a number. And um, uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it may be upwards of six, somewhere in that vicinity right now. So uh, I, I do believe that you'll never, in our lifetimes, and, and hopefully for lifetimes to follow, you'll never see discretions like this happen in that organization again. And that's clear through some of the uh, the new, the new uh, code that Director Sullivan has put in place that uh, some of those trips are not going to be as, uh, as, as fun as they might have been for members of the, the Secret Service uh, advanced detail, certainly the White House staff advanced detail. Everyone is going to be looked at under a much closer microscope. And, you know, as, as Adam and I and you, Arnett, have done so many of those advances, uh, they are incredibly tough. Uh, you know, 20-hour-a-day assignments. There is a time to to blow off some steam, but um, re- in the in the modern era, you can't because uh, you know everything is under scrutiny. I do think Director Sullivan has taken uh, uh, prompt steps, uh, and and you know the reality too, as Adam and I talk on Holly Optics all the time, is that in the the way the news cycle is in 2012. The, the story moves on. You moved on to the French elections, and now you're on to gay marriage. Uh, so that it's, I, I hope that uh, Director Sullivan feels like he has a bit more of a of a, uh, a, a an area to work in without the constant scrutiny that he had for that very tough first ten days after this broke. Um, you know, Adam, you're you're correct. It, it's 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 kind of, the story has moved on a little bit in the public eyes, but I can promise you. At, at Director Sullivan's level and the the level of his direct uh, team, it is not moved on. It will remain with them every day until the day they re- they, they retire from the organization. Absolutely. Uh, I want to we want to let you get back to uh, working on the summit. You've got a, a ton of work to do between now and uh, May twentieth when the leaders start descending on O'Hare and other airports that uh, they'll be received at. Uh, Arnett Heinz, uh, Chief Executive Officer and Co-founder of the firm Hillard Heinz, working with the. 
uh, NATO host committee for the city of Chicago, putting on uh, the, the best face that the city of Broad Shoulders can, welcoming the world for the upcoming NATO summit to the Windy City. Arnett, good luck with the summit. Thank you very much for joining us on Polyoptics. Thank you, Adam and Josh. Appreciate it. You got it all planned right Bet you never worry